Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Dustin Fletcher, Al Green, Travis Storm, everybody, Tyson Edwards, Brett Maher, Dale Kicker, Eugene Greenwich, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bill McDonald, Sam Jacobs, Calvert, Marcus Ferris, Sean Reddish, James McIntyre, Andrew Vlahoff, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Akamatis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Lich, Matt Smith, Michael Brooks, Brendan T, Jordan McMahon, Brett Fitt, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Stapwell, Dusty Rakeheart, Sam Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgetsky, Dom Tyson, Sergio Fenday, Adam Snyder, Ricky Grick, Rick Latson, Rod Jefferson, Toby Thurston. Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. They've got a brand new stadium, a big one. And they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed for the Premiers in 2018. There it is. Brisbane have won it. The Orange Order is restored. It took just one season of transition, but Brisbane Raw, Premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17-year drought is over. Sydney, the NBL 22 champions. 3 0 sweep. They win it 97 to 88. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast, episode 42. This is your host, Daniel. All is very good, very blessed, very grateful from this end and always hoping all is well for you listening from your end. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Port Adelaide Premiership player, Toby Thurstons. Throughout our conversation, some of the highlight moments include growing up in Crib Point, Victoria, arriving at Port Adelaide in 1999 and his relationship with the one and only coach he had throughout his AFL career, Mark Williams winning an SANFL Premiership in 2002 with Sturt, waiting four years for his AFL debut in 2003, being a part of that famous AFL Premiership in 2004 with Port Adelaide defeating Brisbane Lions, who were going for four Premierships in a row, would have been the greatest team of all time, and then almost signing with Hawthorne a couple of years later, the infamous 119-point loss in the 2007 Grand Final against Geelong, and the impact this game made on not only the Port Adelaide players and coaches, but the entire football club in the four or five years after this game, and his role now at Port Adelaide as a part of the past player and officials group. From 1999 to 2009, he played 110 games, scored 55 goals. He is an AFL Premiership player in 2004, and he was also Port Adelaide's best first-year player in 2003. So let's get it underway from Port Adelaide, Toby Thurston's. Thurston's kicks the goal. 
The fourth for Port Adelaide, they're right back Aubrey in it. Off the boot stand under that and take a mark. A snap at a vacant goal square is home. Thurston's has kicked Port Adelaide's fifth goal and put them back in front here at the MCG. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. And today we've got Port Adelaide fan favourite and 2004 Premiership player, Toby Thurston's. Thank you very much for coming on the show here tonight. I appreciate it, mate. My pleasure. Over 10 years since you played your last game, you were involved with the Port Adelaide Past Players and Officials Group as president. What else have you been up to since retiring and, and how did you settle into life out of professional football? Yeah, well, when you say it like that, time has really gone quickly. So I played the one year at Sturt after I finished with the Power in you know, 09. And so the last probably 12, 13 years have just been made up of basically kids. I've got my eldest is Darcy, he's 15. Miller's, she's about to turn 11. So running around, entrenched myself with kids' sport, sort of help coaching and, you know, we're, we're active team managers and, and obviously taxis. So that's been majority of the time work-wise. So when I finished football, pre-retirement, I studied construction management and economics. So then post-football got straight into, into the construction industry, sunk my teeth into it with a residential builder just to gained some experience and some momentum and then the last seven years I've been project management and business management so I've been on the delivery side of things for a commercial builder so yeah so I've just divide my time between those three things. So do you think it's important for any athlete to have a plan once they retire because for yourself you've been doing a lot of things and also with family do you think it's important to know what you want to do after football whether that's stay within the game or go off in a different direction? Yeah, in hindsight, I actually think it's one of the most important things and it's quite critical to not only being able to transition a lot more easily, but it also gives you that outlet during your football. Focus, obviously, is quite intense, especially at the moment with the with the external scrutiny via social media, the access that journalists, media and that have at the moment. I think it provides an outlet and then... Yeah, ultimately, it gives you that ability to be able to transition a lot more easily. And it was probably one of the things that I waited a little bit long to do. I mean, I tried a few things, but I didn't really narrow down my focus. And it wasn't a huge focus of the football club and the AFL in general. It was the take-up of external study compared to people just focusing 100% on football was probably no... And it was transitioning, but probably not where, where it should have been. And that was fine. That was just as the AFL evolved and Players Association had more influence on the careers of their members. Yeah, ultimately, people studying became a bigger focal. So do you think it's important for a player to do something outside of football? A balancing act. You've got to obviously focus on your football because you want to be the best player you can be, but you've also got to have one eye to the future. What's your sort of viewpoint on that? No, you've probably dialed it there is you're playing football because you want to excel in the sport and you obviously want to try and achieve the pinnacle of playing in an AFL grand final and, and achieving a premiership. But ultimately, you just want to be the best version of yourself. At no point you ever go, oh, I've reached the top of the mountain. You don't think like that. You're always just continually trying to improve. Some people take longer than others. 
but that you know the AFL pay. You know, you're you're there to play football. They pay your wage. So you know your focus needs to be on being able to present yourself in a manner that's obviously going to help your team succeed. But in saying that, the average lifespan of an AFL footballer, I assume from when I was playing, is probably still around that four years, maybe even lower. It might be three years. And ultimately, there's a lot of players that are only going to make a little bit of money from football, and they need to make sure that they can have something post-football. So it is critical, but it is definitely a balancing act. So was playing football something that you always wanted to do? Originally, you're from Crib Point in Victoria. Growing up, did you want to play at an elite level growing up, or did it sort of just happen? Probably just happened. We didn't have access to AFL games when I grew up. We didn't get along to many games. I loved the game. I played the game from about four years of age in under nine. So it was something I loved. And, you know, I played at high levels up until probably about the age of sort of 12 and 13. And then I was a late developer. So five foot eight, five foot nine, still at 15, 16. Whilst everyone sort of grew past me, you know, everyone matured through puberty a lot earlier than I did. And, and it wasn't until I was sort of 16 that I went from 5'9 to 6'6 or 6'5 in that short period of 18 months. And then my, the football world and the football landscape changed. But it still wasn't goal to play AFL. Ultimately, I ended up playing at the Stingrays because my best mate was the captain there. And in the second year, top age 18s, I had to invite myself to the Stingrays and ask if I could try out, which, if you know me, that took a lot of courage to invite myself. But And then, yeah, they basically just gave me the opportunity and said if, if I fell behind, though, they'd just have to ask me to leave. And, and then I had some really good success with the Stingrays. It was, I played, you know, with Favola and Ramanaskis, Milne, a really good team. Big, um, big names, yeah. Huge names. And... And then it just went really quickly. Like it, I, I didn't play, I didn't even make the state squad. And then because of my performances in the first half of the year, things started to sort of open up. And then before you, you knew it, it was it was August and a few of the AFL clubs were ringing and having a chat. And then it was, was, was kind of just, yeah, let's go for it. We start to make some sacrifices and some changes in the back half of the year to try and meet some clubs and, and put yourself in a good position to, to get drafted. So how did Port Adelaide come about? Had you been in talks with them leading up to that 1998 draft? spoke to them a couple of times, actually. They were probably one of the few clubs that spoke to me before the draft camp. So that was basically just a phone call at home. And then at the draft camp, you kind of don't hear much. Like, I had a couple of opportunities to play AFL Reserve. So I played with Collingwood and I played with Carlton. And those opportunities come off the back of performances and I assume recruiters obviously advising the teams to get a couple of people along. So it was still always all up in the air. Had a lot of discussions with Richmond and they were the pick before Port. Didn't eventuate and then, yeah, and then Port eventually picked me up. So that was pick 39, wasn't it? Correct, yes. What was your mindset with in terms of like moving away and stuff like that? Were you happy to, to venture out or did you want to stay in Victoria? I was just over the moon. I just was blown away by the fact to give it an opportunity. And 12 months prior, I was playing at Crib Point. You know? Yeah, it's in amazing months, how things can turn. Yeah. yeah, I've gone from Crib Point to the AFL in 12 months. And when I got drafted, you got 
the rockers rolling around. You got Carey roll, and, and especially you know big guys. And these are these are huge names. All of a sudden, I was about to join a system alongside these superstars of the competition, and, and it was yeah. I, I was definitely I'm one of five kids, so I spent a lot of time away on weekends. You know, there's obviously no technology and all that sort of stuff. So surfing with skate, we'd go and hang out as friends, and just sort of swept up in the whole fact that I had an AFL opportunity, and and yeah, it was just basically a big adventure, and we'll, we'll go we'll go and see how it plays out. So when you first got to the club, obviously Port Adelaide, massive club here in South Australia and a rich history. But in terms of the AFL, well, they'd only had two seasons in the the AFL competition. It was Mark Williams' first season as coach. When you first rocked up to the club, what was it like? What was the vibe around the club? And what are your memories of walking in for that first time in that first pre-season? I definitely remember the first couple of weeks. I was drafted with five other interstate. So we all got sort of put together pretty early. And then we all, there was three of us were available after sort of school had finished to get there quite soon. And then I think I was 80 kilos wet, tall and skinny and, and basically just kind of wandered in and I remember my locker was right next to Wanganang's locker and, and I just like, I just pinched myself. I just, I was like, yeah, that's how amazing. is this even real? A kid from Crip Point is, and I, and I was very naive. I was not very, very knowledgeable around what was required to sort of play AFL. I just played under 18 based off sort of just my natural ability and, you know, it wasn't really, you know, I hadn't done a lot of pre-seasons before and I'd never done weights before and then all of a sudden you're thrust into into this situation and I remember doing my very first time trial and oh, I remember vomiting that was that was all I remember is that it was so hard and even just doing weight sessions it just was not used to it so it took me a little while just to get into it and to feel comfortable there's obviously some big personalities but also they were just very welcoming you know it was such a buzz and definitely the goosebumps and the, and the adrenaline rush that you feel at the same time of rocking up to it as an AFL club that it was such an amazing feeling. And what about being around Choco Williams? He seems like a very imposing figure. What was it like <laughs> first met him? Yeah, Choco's very, he is, he's very imposing, he's intimidating and he's, he, he has an aura about him that, that young people initially would, would find hard to sort of deal with and and I, I was definitely in the, in that boat and it probably took me three or four years I reckon to feel comfortable I mean it took me four years three years to get my first AFL game so the, the only reassurance behind it all was that he always made it clear that if if he continues to speak to you you don't have anything to worry about he's obviously got time he's putting in time and energy into trying to get more out of you it's when he doesn't speak to you is when you've got to worry about whether the end is coming, but yeah, definitely, definitely an intimidating person. But we we learnt work with each other as I got older, and, and it definitely was a learning curve for both of us. I I learnt to understand the environment I I'm in requires it's a cutthroat industry, and it re, and you're at the, the pinnacle of the sport. So coaches are going to expect a certain standard. So, but then you know he also learnt towards the end that. To get the best out of me, he had to sort of go about things a different way. So, yeah, but definitely an intimidating person, but amazingly knowledgeable as well. 
So your first season at Port Adelaide was 1999, but you didn't debut until 2003. Why was that? Were you just not ready at the time? Yeah, definitely not ready. The first two years, I was just way too skinny and I was just, yeah, still not performing well enough at, at the cert level. I was still sort of learning my craft and, and like most big, tall, skinny guys, it, it sort of took a little bit longer. Although 2001, my, my third and fourth year, so 2001, 2002, I was emergency like nearly every week. Yeah, so you're but obviously close. Through those, yeah, so those years, obviously we were successful with our win-loss, didn't suffer a lot of injuries. I think 2001 or two, I was in the Samson team of the year. So my form was there and I, I had showed a lot of improvement, but it was just quite simply, there just was no spots available. So it was Mead and Waitland and Bishop and Paxman and a lot of these older guys in the back line and then just the same up forward. There were players that were just entrenched there that you know you sort of couldn't push out and you had to basically just wait for an injury. So it was really just bide my time and be patient which was quite difficult at times, but ultimately we got there in the end and you look back at how it all played out and sometimes you wish you'd, you'd do things a little bit differently or vice versa, but yeah, it was a tough three or four years, but definitely the first couple of years I wasn't ready. And in 2002, you played in SANFL Grand Final with Sturt defeating Central District. What are your memories of that day and do you think that that year in particular helped pave the way for your debut in 2003? played a lot through those early years I actually had a lot of really sort of close friends there and then the grand final was the sample was such a prestigious sort of competition over here and it's it held in such high regard I just remember you know the week leading up to it and the week post sort of winning it just the messages of support from past premiership players it was a lot of, the first time Sturt had won one in a while it really sort of hit home yeah, the importance of the sample play, you know, in the competition. So definitely one of my uh, fondest memories was winning that premiership for sure. And then the year after when you finally make your debut, so that's your fifth season on the list, you you make your debut. You won Port Adelaide's Best First Year Player Award. What did that mean to you considering you had to wait so long for that opportunity to finally play in the AFL? Well, I suppose it just initially just vindicated what I had been trying to achieve and the effort that I'd put in and, and and the like and that I was ready. Getting that award obviously meant a lot given that I was a bit older. Sort of go past all your other sort of NAB or any of your rookie awards. But yeah, How well, old for, were you For that me year? it was 22. 22, okay. So yeah, you're a bit yeah. older than... Yeah, exactly. So confidence coming off from 02. I had, I'd learned a bit more. I got a bit stronger. Pre-season started to stack up and you start to get a bit fitter. 
and there were some list changes made as well so there were opportunities there for me to sort of get in at, at the start it was definitely a long time but definitely just very rewarding obviously your family and your friends and and everyone uh, standing by your side help you out in in many ways so obviously for you to achieve making your debut and and for me it was five years down the track so it was just very vindicating that from the effort and you know the dedication that you put in over the years and what about the next year so 2004 of course the premiership year that was a fantastic Port Adelaide team in that year so that era of the early 2000s so Wanganine, Treadray, the Corns brothers, the Burgoyne brothers, Laid Pickett, Wakeland Primus, yourself the list goes on in that yeah. particular year you stopped the four-peat, of course. So Brisbane going for four premierships in a row. Did you guys truly believe that you could beat Brisbane? Football is a numbers game. And the magic number in football is four. Only once in history has a team won four consecutive flags. An incredible feat achieved by great men, Collingwood heroes. Look at the names, note the dates. Theirs was an achievement so rare that it has never been repeated. It was so long ago that every part of that magnificent team has passed into history. These men exist now only in our hearts and minds, but their legacy lives on through decades, through generations. So while these are the numbers certain to occupy Port Adelaide's minds, numbers whose own stories are being written by the great lions who carry them. The bigger picture, history's tale for the ages, isn't about individuals. It's about a team, its relentless brilliance, and a number that, given another Brisbane triumph, will be this day's dramatic, historic endpoint. The best ever? We're about to find out. Yeah, we did. I think, from my perspective, was that getting past that prelim final, that was probably the hardest game to get past for us mentally. And once we were able to sort of break that shackle of not making a grand final in the previous three years, it was really a huge weight lifted off our shoulders and we were able to sort of relax, plan the week and enjoy it. And, you know, one of the main messages from the club and, and definitely from Choco was obviously just to soak it up, enjoy the moment, get all your planning done at the start of the week and then definitely look around and, and enjoy it with your family and your friends and just soak up the atmosphere. But yeah, it's definitely a game that we thought that we could win. Obviously, ultimate respect for Brisbane in achieving what they had done in the preceding three years, but ultimately got to a grand final and we'd had a really, really strong win-loss record over the last four years and, and, and there was no one we couldn't beat. So we really just needed to put it together on the day and winning that prelim final the week before, that was obviously, for me, the catalyst for us to be able to relax and, and mentally prepare to, to try and win the game. I suppose because Port Adelaide had so many opportunities in the years prior, 
the way you mentioned it there, to win the prelim, it was almost like the pressure was off you. If anything, it would have been on Brisbane because that was their one and only chance to create history. Yeah, Brisbane, it wasn't really sort of something that we thought about was let's ruin Brisbane's opportunity to create history. It was really just focus on ourselves and for us to be able to be a part of Port Adelaide's history and first premiership opportunity and being able to take that. It's hard to know who had the most pressure because when you're part of grand final week, you become the basically the centre of attention nationally and the focus has narrowed down from, what was it, 16 teams, I suppose, at that period down to two and it just intensified. So you're not actually, I mean, apart from the planning, everyone's subjected to the same amount of external pressure. You know, you've got people from all angles either pumping you up while you can do it, but then conversely, you've got people on the other side saying, why well, you can't do it, and why Brisbane will do it. So it's different. Like, like, And each time grand final week rolls around now, it just transforms me straight back to that week. And I just, you get goosebumps knowing what the teams that are about to compete in that week are going through. And it's, it's almost euphoric because it's, it's really hard to describe, but it gives me goosebumps every year. And yeah, I, I mean, that's really the only sort of real way that I can feel I can describe it in terms of who's on, who's got the most pressure and who hasn't. And I love asking this question. So what's it like before the game when you come up the race grand final day and you know you see the crowd, you hear the noise and you sort of run through the banner? What's that emotion like? It's obviously different for any other day because of the warm-up preparation changes. So you don't get that, get that warm-up out on the ground like we're able to get in every other game because obviously of the entertainment. So you lock down in the bunker for two hours. You sort of go up the race and you have a bit of a peer out and have a bit of a look and get a bit of a feel for it. But as you're sort of coming together before you're about to exit the room, you're, you're looking at each other in the eye and and it's it. It's game time. You you come up out of the race and everyone's so amped that you all, almost just have to... From memory, I just had to yell. Like, I come out on the ground, I was, I was so excited by the situation of, of the roar. And it was obviously not even... A, <laughs> it's not your home ground. And you've probably only got 10 or 15% the crowd there but it, it's just such an amazing moment that all you have to do is all I could do was, was really just yell and expel a bit of energy and soak it up you, you just feel like you're walking on cloud nine all right everyone it's time for a quick break on a5q I want to talk about cappuccinos the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions, and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price, but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, contact us directly via phone at 0418 
894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out the way, let's get back to the show. What were your memories of the game? Is it a bit of a blur now or do you, do you physically remember the actual game and the atmosphere? Because the MCG was still being redeveloped at that time, so there wasn't as many people there as usual grand final crowd. But what was the buzz like and, and what are your recollections of just sort of looking around? So, yeah, so I think it was capped. I think it was about 75,000, which was <laughs> a bit disappointing. But Was it, was it, it still real loud? So, yeah, yeah, it's really hard to hear. So, consciously for a couple of weeks, we tried to train without using your voice at various times. Choco was always quirky with coming up with different ways of, of trying to put you into a situation. And because you can't really hear, you've, you've actually got to really use your, your vision look sideways look backwards just to be able to see all options you can't just rely on the noise so uh, on on the voice so super loud and then everyone reacts to every moment of the game it was every goal every tackle obviously our, our grand final was, was quite fiery with with a number of fights so you kind of felt that energy from the crowd but you also felt that energy from the game a hard, a hard environment to sort of describe because there, there is no tomorrow. Like it, you've got to put everything on the line, and 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 the supporters can sense that, so they they're on edge as well. So yeah, ultimately you're just basically just riding every moment because you can feel it from the crowd. And how did you actually beat Brisbane? Because of course, as I mentioned, they were the premiers. O one, O two, O three. They're going for history four in a row with Voss, Black, Ackermanis, Power, Brown, Lynch. Where did you think you could get them? Basically, what we needed to do was would be fast through the midfield. So when we had, the, like, obviously, Peter and Sean through the midfield, Byron, but then you got Roger James, Kane, Kari. I mean, Kari was so significant in that game in terms of how he could take it up to Brisbane physically as well. So... Ultimately, we just needed to use our speed and our legs. We knew Brisbane were, were older. We knew they had a, had a few injuries coming into the game. So, yeah, so we basically... Forward line was just to be one-on-one and spread, try and isolate any mismatches. And then through the midfield, we just needed to run. Right? We needed to make sure that we moved the ball with speed. And, and that's essentially sort of what it came down to, was being able to sort of outrun them. And what about your own performance? So you kicked three goals. All three were super critical. So two goals either side of half time, and then one mid-last quarter to more or less seal the game. Great cult hero-like performance. What are your, what are your memories of, of kicking those three goals? He's done pretty well, but Ackermanis has kicked three. Montgomery. Port would love a goal to hang their hats on at half time. Carr, great delivery. And Thurston's... There's 35 centres out. Beer outlook for Brisbane. Port haven't kicked a goal for 20 minutes. Toby Thurston's to stop the rot. And he stands up. And Port is still there. It's just their second goal of the quarter. And in between the two they've kicked, Brisbane have rattled them with four quick ones. Good play by Montgomery, bold there to just to move it on to Carr. Carr with his excellent kicking finds Thurston. Daryl White trailing by five metres. An uncertain Wanganeen. In the end, sits it up. 
for Thurston's, and he'll get a free kick. And that is the weak link at the moment for Brisbane, is Daryl White on Thurston's. Daryl White really in trouble on a tall opponent, and Wanganeen opted to go to Thurston's instead of Brogan, instead of Treadray. Toby Thurston's kicked a good goal in the second quarter, an important one to pull Port back. And now he puts them in front at the start of the second half. Fresh legs, and again, good coaching by Mark Williams to make sure that he's got the run for this final term. Josh Carr, a left footer, wanting to get onto his natural side. Black just got enough of him, but the kick fell for Thurston's. And this year, he's played every game. And on grand final day, he lines up for his third goal. And he puts the power 27 points in front. It was pretty surreal. Like I, I remember being up and down the ground a little bit up through the midfield, so I was able to get my hands on the ball a bit. And then consciously, we we knew that I I had White, and I he he was obviously coming off. I don't think he'd played for four or five weeks before that game, and they brought him in for the grand final, and we knew he was going to be underdone. So that was basically a bit of a focus of us. But kicking the goals in in the moment, I felt quite calm and relaxed. I'd missed my first opportunity, sort of out in front in the first quarter, which I was a little disappointed about. And then once I kicked the first one, I was quite oddly calm about being able to line up and, and slot them through. The, and it's not until after the game and then being able to speak to people like yourself about the game, that sort of how important it was. Like I, I, I just, from my own perspective, I looked back and I, I played my role and, and yes, you know, probably had one of my better games on grand final day, but yeah, it was it was really just a great feeling that I could contribute and be able to sort of help the team achieve the ultimate success because only seven or eight days before that, I'd, I'd had a stinker in the prelim final and basically had to sort of just get some reassurance from Chopper early in the week that I was going to maintain my spot. But Oh, really? Um, yeah, so it was a great feeling, obviously being able to contribute and, you know, and help the team achieve success. Was it one of those games where you just felt confident, like you could just, you know, when, you, when you're in that mood where you just think you yeah. could do anything? It was just one of those days where you went, yep. Yeah. I didn't have any issues with kicking. Like, my strong point or one of my assets was my kick. And so, once I got the ball, I, I had no issues. I was, I was confident that I could do what I needed to do with the ball. So, really just needed to be able to sort of work myself into a position or into a situation that allowed me to be able to get the ball or get a mark and, and put myself in front of goals. Because once I had that opportunity, I, yeah, I was, I was always very confident with my goal kicking. I just, I just needed to get the opportunities. And what about when the final siren sounds and you've won a premiership? So the minutes after that siren, when, when everyone's celebrating, what's that feeling like? Here he comes. Oh, look at that. An outpouring of emotion from Mark Williams. He's the proudest man in the land tonight. I asked him yesterday whether he felt that his late father and his late brother and his mother, who recently had heart surgery, were with him today. He said he did. Look at that. There it is. It's all over. Port Adelaide. They had the power to win. And it was very history in the making today
And as always, there's a loser. But you can never call the Brisbane Lions losers. The moment has come and gone for Brisbane. It will never come again. The streak's been broken. Port are the champions. Playing into a grand final, playing for that long, going through a pre-season, it's quite draining. Put so much emotionally and physically into a season. You're playing hurt some weeks. You're just getting up. You know, your night games, you're not getting to sleep until three in the morning. There's a lot of factors that come into it. You only have that feeling after a grand final. After the end of a season, basically, you haven't played finals. You still have a, a failed kind of emotional reaction. And then the same thing with the final. So it's really only after a grand final that one team can actually have that feeling of achieving the ultimate success. But having that drain just released from you, you know, like, and, and you can share it with, you know, with your mates. So in one perspective, you feel like you could probably go and play again because you're, you're so excited and you're, you know, the adrenaline's so charged you know, running through you that you could probably go again. But then on the other side of it is that that's it. You've given everything. You can't give any more. So that feeling, it's just amazing, really. It's, just, it's really hard to describe and you can really only, you only know it once you've gone through it. But in terms of trying to describe it for the supporter or the listener, it's, it's really just one of those moments that you can share with really good friends and it might be you know, a birth of your child or a wedding, you know, they, they sort of, people compare them, but you know, you don't get married to 22 other blokes or, you, <laughs> you know, you, you can't share the birth of your, your child with so many other people that put in such a hard work, in, in the hard work as well. So it's an amazing feeling. You, you're brimming with confidence, you're brimming with pride. Your families are proud, proud of each other, and yeah, and then you, you go and enjoy it for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, that's an amazing answer. The famous cat-dog moment. So that's another one I wanted to ask you about. When you go up to collect your medal at the dais, go to the microphone, you say, cat-dog. What was the premise of that? Because I do recall that TV show growing up. Number 28, Toby Thurston. Yes, so if I'm remembered for anything, I'm definitely remembered for this. It's funny because over the years, so many people have asked me about this story and I haven't told a lot of people I don't get too many opportunities to tell it. And essentially at the start, it was quite insignificant. So Cat Dog, basically it was born from what me and my local mates at Crib Point used to call each other. Sample used to have a buy. So I used to go home on the bye weekend and I'd get everyone around and we'd all catch up and have a fire and a few beers and, and then sort of carry on a bit. I remember one night we had a fire and the, it must have been wet that night because we were inside for some reason and, and the cartoon was on in the background. Then we'd eventually gone back outside and then had 10 or 12 beers, I suppose. And, and so you're carrying on a bit. And then one of, one of my mates, looked at the fire and, my, and our dog was sort of sitting next to it and he just made this a crappy joke about aren't you a little hot dog <laughs> and then it was from hot dog we sort of banded around a few of these different things and then it ended up being cat dog so for years and years <laughs> we called each other cat dog and 
fast forward, they were all on a footy trip. So the same weekend as grand final day or grand final weekend, they were all heading to Albury Wodonga and I was heading on the bus to the grand final day parade and they rang up and they were obviously pissed and they were, you know, you've got to say something if you're going to win and I'm like, mate, me saying something on the microphone is the last thing I'm thinking about, yeah, you know, right. especially <laughs> before the game. Anyway, it was said that we win, I was, what will I say? And we was like, oh, we'll say cat dog. Anyway, so that was that. Was that. 24 well, hours later, I hadn't you know, sort of thought too much about it, but they were all the pub in Albury with Ongas watching grand final. And then there would have been two or 3,000 people at the pub. And by half time, everyone in the pub knew that they were there and the connection between my local mates and the footy club with me on grand final day. And my brother was there. And, and as the game went on and on and we got in front everyone obviously it said you know it was just building and then once we'd won and we we're getting presented our medals i'd said cat dog on the on the microphone they just said the, i reckon the pub just erupted like, that would have gone was, off yeah <laughs> yeah because it was just a, a small connection but essentially it was just something that i did for my local mate and and the rest was history but i've got sandwich bags and coffee mugs and all sorts of shit sent into me, into my management. That's so good. But, yeah, so it was, it was something that started out so innocent. And over the years, it's, it's probably been the one thing that I've had to explain to people more <laughs> than anything. That's so good that winning a premiership, that's what was on your mind. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I forgot to shake the young kid's hand. I was so nervous about... Oh, really? ...over the microphone. <laughs> poor, poor kid. I, yeah, I know. He's sitting there up at me and uh, <laughs> he um and I bloody forgot to shake his hand but yeah yeah I was, I was so nervous because not many people do that and I'm not I'm not an extrovert by any stretch so yeah so that that was a big deal for me to be able to do that so did you still leave him hanging or did you go back no no I didn't know I didn't even think of it and like the next day might have been triple m or the radio station and the, and the mum had rang, rang up and my parents all lived in Victoria and we headed back to Adelaide the following day and my mum had rang me. She goes, oh, you know that kid that was presented you a medal? Well, the mum rang up and she was having a go because you didn't shake the kid's hand. And I was like, well, oh, it's, yeah. not about the, it's not about the kid, but anyway. And that kid would probably, he'd be, he'd be what, pushing 30 now? Yeah, probably. So he would have been seven or eight, I suppose, those kids, yeah, 20 <laughs> years ago. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Last one on the early 2000s, Port Adelaide. So... As I mentioned with, you know, Wanganin and Pickett, Treadray and, and that core group. Yeah. So 2001 made the finals, but exited in straight sets. Then 0-2, minor premiers. 0-2, you lost the prelim. And then 0-4, you obviously won the premiership. Do you think to have only won one premiership in that time is a bit of a shame? Should the club have probably won more throughout that time? Treadray and Hay. Treadray's left foot kick. Hawthorne have won it. Hawthorne have won it. It's one of the greatest victories in the history of a club that had such a run in the 1980s. Yeah, I think, uh, that's there it. it is. Oh. And for the second year running, Brisbane are into the grand final. This time, they'll take on Collingwood.
don't know what the club's ever sort of said about it, but we, we still catch up and we still talk about about those days. And I think the general feeling is that two is probably about right. We yeah, probably... such a good team. How many people have won three in a row? You know, four in a row. So we had the team to do it, yes, but. In reality, we probably look back and go, well, you know, it would have been nice to split that 2-2. You know, we'd had, I think, two draws between us and we'd had, you know, another three or four games that were all under a, under a goal. So we'd had some really, really big games and a really good rivalry over those four years. And ultimately, you look back and Brisbane, that team will be one of the best teams of all time. And, and we won the one premiership, but in terms of win-loss, we had the ability to get to more, but I think if we if we'd had a one one more, you know, it would have been about right. But some don't win any, so it's uh, yeah, it's only really discussions that hypothetical, and we're just yeah over the moon that we've had that opportunity to be able to win one. Halftime break here on Amato's fifth quarter podcast. And I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated and I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility, which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. The next year, so 2005 was clearly the end of an era for the club. Still made the finals, but you weren't sort of anywhere near the level you had been. 06, you missed the finals, and this is the time when... Your position at Port was sort of up in the air. You were you were still playing forward and you had a few injuries. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you almost moved to Hawthorne with your connection to Alistair Clarkson. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. So I was playing forward and I was I was never actually really a natural forward. I, I basically played forward out of necessity, really, and basically to get me into the team because we'd still had Bishop and Wakeland. Chad was playing down back. So there wasn't, still wasn't really a position, but I was always naturally a back then. It was where I sort of played at Sturt and my junior days. So it was a bit of a makeshift board. And then 05, I had a poor year. I had just little things like an ankle injury right at the end of pre-season. And then team wasn't playing well. And as a forward, the team's not playing well. It, you know, it makes it hard to, to play well yourself. But end of 05, it was so close to getting to Hawthorne that I'd spoken to Clarko. We both agreed. I'd spoken to the club. Both clubs had agreed on a trade. I'd rang my family. All official. So, but it was all on the last day. So, it was all done. We all agreed. And then, yeah, basically I'd, I'd rang everyone and sorted everything out. And then I, I got this phone call from my manager and he's like, you need to get to the office straight away. And I was like, why is that? And he goes, because you haven't signed the power of attorney, you need to be. And so, whilst I was driving, the form it got timed out. So, and so that's the, the only, that's the yeah, only reason you didn't go to Hawthorne. Yeah, trade period finished, and it got timed out, and the deal didn't get done. So, it, yeah, 
basically back to square one and we, we stayed and, and that was so that's how close it was and that was from that next year onwards and i don't know about every management but our management group basically had everyone sign a power of attorney going into the trade period so that didn't happen again have you ever thought about what may have happened had you gone to hawthorne or did you just focus on what did happen not not really i I don't really focus and dwell on too much. I don't let things get to me too much. Um, it, it, it is what it is. I didn't hate Port Adelaide. It was basically just a, an opportunity that was that would have been nice. I would have been at Clarko would have played me down back straight away, and then that was probably would have been nice to be able. And that and at the time that was my thinking was, well, now I've got to play forward again and. But no, I didn't. I didn't really think about it too much. I, you know, I look back and I ended up playing till 2009. I think mainly because I needed a change and I'd, I'd just had enough. So I look back and I think maybe if I'd had that change in at the end of 05 for 06, I, I think I could have played a lot longer. Um, I was only 29 when I finished, and my body was really good, and I didn't, I didn't have too many issues. Like I wasn't slowing down or anything, and I basically. Seven, eight, and nine were my, my best years of, of football, and and that was coincidentally when I'd, I'd gone back to centre half, back or full back. So yeah, I look back every now and then and, and think what if, but it wasn't to be. But it was it was very very close. Did you actually want to go to Hawthorne, or were you happy to stay at Port Adelaide? Well, I remember talking to my manager post season, and we'd had some discussions about maybe whether a change was good and. I was open to it, but I remember him asking about, don't say anything in your exit interview. We'll just work through it. We'll see what it looks like and just leave it up to us. And, and as it sort of dribbled along, there was obviously some discussion through the trade period, but I think Hawthorne were, they had all their eggs in Thornton, I reckon, from Carlton at that time. And that fell over. So then the attention then moved to myself, but it was, it was just too late. But, it was definitely something that we discussed post-season and then, but we weren't quite sure about what the other clubs thought of it or what, what the opportunities were going to be like. So we didn't really go too hard with it. But I, I mean, I was happy to sort of stay, but a, a change would have been good. 2007, a magnificent year for the club on the field, certainly. You made that move to defence and you had a great mix that year. So you still had the old in Treadray and Wakeland, Cassisi, Laid, Corns, Burgoyne Brothers. Yeah. But then you also had the new. So you had Boke and Westhoff, Motlop, Logan, Roden, Ebert, etc. That season you yep. finished second on the ladder and you make it all the way to the grand final. Looking back at that time and that season, of course, barring the final game, how do you reflect on that season as a whole? Because it was, minus the grand final, it was a very, very good year for Port Adelaide. And they were one of the best teams in the competition. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I look back on that year and I and, and I, was, I was very proud of what we were able to achieve that year. We were definitely a very young team with a mix of experience. But for us to come from where we had the previous two years with the injection of the young guys, as you mentioned, it was such an enjoyable year because the feeling around the club was really good. And I just, yeah, I just remember it being... And for myself, moving back to defence, playing some good football, it was it, it was an amazing achievement. And, you know, you look back and you go, well, there are other teams through that year that were, you know, sort of only one or two wins behind us. 
and you look at North Melbourne, you go, well, North Melbourne, you know, we beat North Melbourne by 85 points in the prelim final. They probably would have been just as disappointed with their year, but we get remembered for the grand final, which did we overachieve that year? Yeah, maybe we did. Geelong was by far and away the best team. I think they were still two or three games ahead on top. And percentage was, was ridiculous. I remember, remember looking at it and Geelong are probably similar to us in 01, 2 and 3 where they probably actually should have won one in the previous few years as well. But I also remember that year that I reckon Geelong and Hawthorne, it was those first two years that they'd started to play different style of football. It was more the modern football with the zoning, that high pressing of your defence to trap the ball in. And, and the other teams, we, we just didn't know sort of how to deal with it. And they were on. <laughs> and once they were on a roll, we, we just couldn't do anything about it. But in terms of you know pride of being able to look back, definitely still tell people that I was able to, fortunate enough to play in two AFL grand finals. A highlight of my career, the outcome was not there, but the rest of the competition, there were a lot of other teams that wish they would have had that opportunity. And You lose by one point, is that worse than losing by 100 points? I don't know, you lose, you lose, I suppose. And I reckon there are a lot of people out there that would have just wished that they had that opportunity to play in a grand final. So, yeah, ultimately the, the result was... Not ideal, and, and, and we'll never live that down. People will always still raise it and, and talk about it, but you just got to reflect on on the year in its totality and and look at what we achieved and try and push the rest aside. I don't mean to make this a nightmare, but the grand final 2007, going into the grand final, did you truly believe that you could beat Geelong? He makes it a perfect one. Oh, and Rook came in hard at Roden, who didn't flinch. But he might have set one up because Lee pops it through and the lead is in three figures. It is an unthinkable shocking, an incredible celebration. The power of being buried. Siren cannot come quick enough for Port Adelaide. Cats have kicked 5-2 to nothing in the last quarter. The crowd just posted at 97,302. And Andrew Mackey can join the veritable orgy of Geelong goal kickers. He drives through another. The Cats are in heaven. They've had the game won since uh, one minute into the third quarter. Just everything that could possibly have gone wrong has for Port Adelaide. did not so much that we I don't, I don't distinctively remember going we can beat Geelong but I just really remember having the week was actually a really really good week in terms of training standards things kind of went our way 
the feeling before the game in the warm-up. It was actually, and, and I don't know whether it was because it was the second time I'd experienced it, but I was able to focus on the feeling of the lead-up a lot more. And speaking with um, Rogues about this, and, and we look back and we actually still don't know really what went wrong because we had such an amazing week leading up to it and pre-game that we absolutely thought that we were, we were in with a chance. Now, coming off of an easy win against North Melbourne, was that to your detriment? Beating Geelong down in Geelong four or five weeks before that, did that, did that play some part in it? Well, you never know. Really, all you can sort of go by was what happened during the week. And we felt that we were in a really, really good position to be able to challenge. I remember it was a difficult week with uh, Michael Wilson getting injured. You know, we were presented with our Guernseys before the game with Chopper cut up a section or cut up their, his jumper and, you know, it was stitched inside our jumper. So there were so many positives around it and there were so many good feelings and in terms of the group coming together and, and wanting to play for each other. We, we couldn't have done anything more, but we just come up against a side that were, were playing a different style of football and... And we just weren't able to compete with them on the day. And then once they got a roll on, we just couldn't get any penetration through the midfield. And we just couldn't get the ball into our forward line. And unfortunately, we kept sending the ball so over our head. Still stands as a record, 119 point loss in the grand final. But when was the point where you just felt like it was just completely out of control? When, when was that moment? Personally, for me, I know it was... Not until after half-time. I know, the, I know the score was obviously a blowout already at half-time. It was significant. And I, I've never watched the game since. But I, I remember coming out after half-time and as Backman trying to drop back in the hole and contested mark after contested mark was getting three deep taken and try and play on through the midfield and there, there were no options. So you'd, you'd get tackled. There was... It was just at that point through that third quarter, at the start of the third quarter, when we knew we'd tried. People were not trying, and and it was at that point that you just didn't really know what to do. All you could do was hold your head high and finish the game off as best you can and try and do it with, with some pride. And But the harder you tried, the, the worse it sort of got. And then at that point, Geelong can do whatever they wanted to do. They can dictate play. They, they could stand off 10 metres in front of their man and their player and zone off and they didn't have to worry about where we were. They didn't have to worry about the ball getting out the back. They could just almost basically play a game that they wanted to play without even thinking about us and, and, that, and that made it harder because then that put us out of position. So, yeah, from memory, it was just after that, that half-time period. And what was the vibe like after the game so do you remember the immediate impact on yourself and the collective group a lot of the good memories you always discuss you know, 07 is definitely not one of those things that gets discussed we were down in the rooms a lot of tears you know partners and parents and the embarrassment things were coming at us from all directions and it was just very sombering you know I, I remember we were just in the meeting room post the game and president or CEO at the time might have been one of them but you know they'll, they'll speak talk about what to expect for the week and post interviews so it, yeah it, it was a very very sad situation and 
ultimately it was just yeah very sombering and did it impact us moving forward well you, you just never know but it was definitely a big moment you know in the club's history but unfortunately it was just something you know that all our families and friends and partners and all had to bear with us do you remember what choco williams said or what warren Treadray said I have no idea what spoken about in the rooms or post that. I remember people sort of getting up and, and delivering messages, but how much of it gets soaked in, you know, not a lot in a moment like that. It's like, what really can you say? You know, ranting and raving, well, like that, that's not going to achieve anything. So I'd, I think, we, you know, a lot of us sat there and thought about what if and and then ultimately really just sort of move on. I'd, Unfortunately, it's not really something that I remember too much of. Do you remember the impact it had on the playing group in terms of the media and things like that in South Australia? Because obviously, Crows and Port are massive here. Do you remember the vibe around the city and you know the yeah. week, the weeks after? The, the weeks after were quite horrible, actually. Like, it's one thing to sort of go out and cop a bit of shit from opposite supporters or whatever, just anything but small things but it was probably in terms of putting yourself in situations like people just had to stop going out like you wouldn't go to the house or you wouldn't go to the shop put up with certain people saying things and you just felt like a, a basically you just felt like an easy target unfortunately and fights that's, and that's how sort of you know fights break out and so you basically just had to stay home and put yourself in a situation where those situations didn't arise or present themselves and yeah it, it was a terrible couple of weeks so and not probably not so much that you know the media and the print and the, you know that side of things but it was just really i suppose just the general public like it was a horrible time and basically everyone just once they'd had a couple of days of it they just took off and went north and flew into state or to try and just get away from it and try and clear your head and, and then come back and and then get stuck into the next season. So last one on, on 2007. So obviously it was a terrible day for, for Port Adelaide. In the five years after that, you didn't play finals again. Crowds were very low. The club was struggling financially. You had a number of massive losses on the field and there was even a little bit of talk of whether Port Adelaide was going to survive in the AFL. Do you think the grand final performance had anything to do with that? Hindsight, you could probably say yes. At the time, getting new players in, some leave, new coaching staff, it, the environment changes pretty quickly. So you'd like to think no, because you wouldn't want a situation or a game that that happened a couple of years ago influencing a new crop of players that are coming through. But I suppose that the losses post, or the season post the 07 grand final probably had a bit of a snowballing effect on things off field. And obviously the supporters, yeah, it really sort of just fell away from a number of, I suppose, directions. And was it? So it's probably easy to pinpoint hindsight and say that it was it, it had stemmed from that situation, and it, and it may, may not have helped. But I suppose as for you know the club folding or being irrelevant, I, I doubt that was you know that's a bit of a probably a bit a bit of spin. Yes, we had poor crowds and a lot of debt but the AFL would, wouldn't have let obviously a licence fold I suppose and, and be handed back but we just needed change of the 
all the years, even just the AFL era, if you look back and you go, well, 07 was still a successful year from a win-loss perspective and making a grand final. So there's really eight and nine fell away a bit, but then 10, 11, 12 were really dark years. Primus was coaching and you know, I really felt for Matty because he had no backing in terms of resources. You know, there were things going on behind closed doors that I feel were coming from from over his head, pulling strings on, on what should happen. And, and it really just was a dark period. And not until we sort of made that change and, and got someone from the outside in in Kenny and, and Koshy and made that big change to Adelaide Oval that it, it really revived the club, um, essentially put that period behind us. And yeah, I, so I suppose to go back and answer your question, you know, was it from that? Well, it, it's, it's hard to know. My feeling and my thoughts are that there, there are a whole range of things that combine to putting the club in, in that situation. Before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break here on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there, moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favor and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you'll score yourself an extra 10% off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. 2013 was the year that the club was revived because, or started the revival because that's when Kenny came in and then Koshi and then the year after they went to Adelaide Oval. I'm sure for someone like yourself, a former player, former premiership player, it was good to see the club revive and, and back to the powerhouse that it is now and, and could very well win the premiership this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, I was never... Like, I played football. I love football, but I was not really ever a footy head. In the end, I sort of almost played it because I wasn't quite sure what else to do and, and that's just what I did. But post-football, I've, I'm super passionate about the club and, and then to see sort of what Kenny was able to do and come in and, and make those changes and it just, yeah, it does. It, it, it meant a lot to a lot of people because the past players, not distanced themselves, but sort of lost a lot of connection because things like Chad Corns and Dean Brogan and that move getting moved on and going to play with the Giants and and Maddie obviously ending his coaching career, they were, they were really big figures around the club and 
and you know little things like that really didn't help but then sort of Kenny came Boshi came back it sort of really changed the environment again and really allowed the past players to sort of come back and, and be connected and, and get back involved with the club so what was your role there with the past players association basically we Port Adelaide Football Club the AFL era did not have a past player committee or a, a group so there's obviously past players of the club but there was essentially no constitution there was no members there was no real sort of correspondence no database so I actually just love the club so much. I felt that with the help of David Hutton, who's been tremendous, and then and then a group of obviously other volunteers that, that have helped bring this together over the last couple of years and, and finally got us into a position where, you know, we, we have a committee and, you know, a constitution. We're about to get some paid members. You know, we're about to enter a year of first year of paid members. And, yes, that's really just, my involvement was just I felt the need to try and get you know the AFL era back connected with the current crop of players and just connected with the club again, make them feel welcome. And obviously, the past players have played such a big role in shaping the club to where it is now. And and the club, you know, rightfully so, has a hundred percent focus on on the current players. You know, it was no different in, in my era, but. Past players need to be able to just know that they're welcome. Don't have to have the, the red carpet rolled out. You can just come back to the club, come back to training. And, and I actually feel privileged that I get that opportunity to be able to go to training and go out on the ground and chat with the boys and go and speak to Kenny and, and you know, on the board and all that. Like, I, it's, it's, it's a real privilege and it's a real honour that I get the ability to be able to do that. And, you know, I just volunteer my time and, and might be able to do it forever, but it's really just a bit of a passion of mine that I was able to, you know, get give give up some time and and try and get the get the players back together. And I really respect what you're doing because it's I feel it's very important within any sporting organisation to always remember and reflect on the history. Obviously, you want to keep continuing on into the future and and have success in the present and the future. But you've got to remember what it means to wear the jumper and, and what the history of the club and who started yep. it basically. I think that's an underrated quality within a club and it's good to, to hear that you want to enforce that. Yeah, and Port Adelaide have got such good retention. You know, they've got a really good vibe around the club at the moment. Like you don't see players leaving, you see players coming in. It's a really real family environment. But Port Adelaide was, is unique to any other club by the fact that we've merged the sample, you know, the Magpies, post our licence. Then you've got the Magpies that are still running around, but you've got top-up players. So there's all these different eligibility criteria that we've had to consider as well and who is part of our club. But then you've also got the early AFL players that might be from Norwood or Sturt or South Adelaide, North Adelaide. They're not Magpies people. They're actually other sample club people that then played in the AFL team. So there was always a little bit of a, a divide between, you know, AFL and, you know, Magpies and who is Port Adelaide and, you know, and then trying to merge that together was, has been a, a tricky task, but something that we, you know, we need to just keep making headway on and, yeah, ultimately just keep changing, you know, and keep developing and improving over the years. Going into this September, what are your thoughts on Port Adelaide's chance of, of winning the Premiership 
I think our chances really rely on making sure we've got that depth in that key back post. Trent McKenzie is going to be pretty critical in that. And TJ's been such a warrior for us and a really, really good captain and a really good guiding voice for such a young group of players. The ruck situation, um, that's probably also... But if we get we get a couple of those guys back early in the, in the first week of the finals, then I really think that that can steady us. I, I was always of the belief that you can't just stay up. You can't be at your peak for 14, 15, 16 weeks like that. What they'd done for 14 rounds was, was going to take its toll, and we saw that with Collingwood. It's hard to play that type of football all year, and you're going to have a flat spot. You're going to have some injuries. And it was really just trying to take stock, settle down, get everyone back. And I feel for the top four teams, as long as you can run into the finals with one or with the last two games where you've, you've hit some form and you've steadied the ship, finals are different. Finals just brings the best out in people. You don't have to motivate yourself as much to keep getting up because of, of the feeling and, and that surrounds playing final football. So showing that we can win away. But I think the most important thing is just basically getting our, our list, you know, and our playing group stable and just making sure that we have our all options available. So I need a little bit of luck to go their way, but they can definitely, they can definitely go all the way. But yeah, critically, it'll just come down to obviously also making sure that we've got all our, our players available. Your final season in the AFL was 2009. You played pretty much half a season and then that was it for you. How did you come to the decision to retire? I don't remember heaps about 2009. I was still playing okay. I had a couple of little niggling injuries. Um, but I definitely didn't thinking about retiring. I didn't, I didn't retire until after the season and then I sat down just with my wife and basically just said I, I don't know I've just had enough I'd Choco was my only coach and I, it, was, it was the same environment and I, I felt ready to sort of move on but it was it was not something that was building it was definitely just once the season you got over the season and then sort of wound down it was at that point where I go well have I got the energy to go around again have I can I get through another pre-season and, and also just getting through the off-season, making sure that you're in a good enough shape to be able to get into the pre-season. I've had two operations post-season and it was just my time and it was definitely not, it was not a rash decision, but it was definitely something that I'd done after the season. And when you do make that decision, you're going to retire, is that sad? Were you very content with it? How did that sort of sit with you? No, I was very, I was very content. It was, it was actually quite a relieving feeling being able to make that decision, knowing that that was it. You didn't have to have been in peak condition the whole time. You didn't have to block out the scrutiny and the, the criticism and the ridicule from from supporters or the media. So it was really just you could fade away now and you could enjoy life and do things the way that, that I wanted to do. It was a fair adjustment period, but... It was an amazing decision to be able to make and yeah, the feeling of it was just really one of relief and that's quickly replaced with one of now I've got to get a job. So the the transition out of football for you was quite seamless as you said earlier? Yeah, it went pretty well. I was, I was ready. I knew what I wanted to get into. So I was able to use some connections and get my foot in the door and, and then from there it was really just 
yeah, just adjust and and then figure the rest of it out. You know, sort of no different to your first day of, of hitting an AFL club. You throw in the deep end and, and you got to figure it out. And, and yeah, the single swim uh, it was good. I was, I was ready to move on and was able to get on with my life. And throughout your entire career in the AFL, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? I know you only had one coach, but I'll ask it anyway. Who's the best coach you ever played under and why? So obviously, Choco is my one and only AFL coach. But I, I actually really enjoyed spending time with, with Alistair Clarkson for the year for 2004. Really, really good guy in terms of being able to help me with setting goals and, and getting through getting through the weeks and, and prepping myself for the weekend. Best player I played with, Treaders was a superstar in terms of what he could do on the field. Like, he, he was unbelievable. Two or three guys constantly would, would be on him. Wanganine had the, the superstar factor that I really enjoyed. And I got to spend, what, two, three, three years with Robbie Gray and being able to watch what he could do more so now, looking back at what he did pre-season, I could say that I played with, with Robbie. But yeah, probably, probably Treaders. He was, he was amazing. And again, Barry Hall was the most intimidating player to play against. I would have to play on him a number of times. And obviously intimidating, but super powerful. Like He, he was actually really, really powerful and strong. And Buddy. I played on Buddy the year he kicked yeah, you, 100. You could have played with him. Yeah, yeah. Well, with him would have been nice. I played on Buddy and his athleticism was, was just something different. I suppose when I played as a centre-half back was centre-half forwards were, were the toughest opponent. Um, when I played as forward, Treadray or Wade or the like, they tended to get most of the attention. But definitely I'd say Barry Hall and, and Buddy. Toby Thurston's, it's been fantastic to have a chat with you. I really appreciate your time. And I want to wish you all the best with everything you're doing now out of football and also personally with your family. Thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. Not a problem, mate. Appreciate it. And that is a wrap for another episode. I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. And I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's fifth quarter podcast.